Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Julian David Stone. Mr. Stone, a rock photographer from back in the day, in the 80s in particular, and he was witness to a bunch of amazing concerts with camera in hand. U2, Prince, David Bowie, a lot of acts who uh, were huge, became huge, what have you, and he was there for all of it. His book is called No Cameras Allowed. My career is an outlaw rock and roll photographer. So he was a kid, basically, a college kid, and he would smuggle a f- uh, camera in in his clothes, really, and go into the stadium or arena, whatever, and get right up front and shoot these amazing shots. And there's some photos of Prince in particular just out of this world, but you name it. I mean, Foreigner and Blondie and all kinds of stuff. Book is amazing. Really, really cool. Such a neat coffee table book. Uh, the shots are just really, really fun. And the story is really fun, too. There's some interesting background on how he decided to do this and how he went from being a kid to who just did it on the side to Rolling Stone hired him. So quite the story uh, that Mr. Stone has to share. And uh, this was a fun conversation, and I think you will enjoy it. Uh, as you know, we like to be eclectic on the Jonah Carey podcast, and so it's not always baseball and basketball. I like other things too, including Prime Prince. It doesn't get any better than that. So check out this pod if you're into music at all or you're into good stories about photography, or if you just like to hear my Seth Rogen voice for yet another week, you can do that too. Hey, some programming notes for you. CBS Sports, you will find my story on the Robinson Cano trade, which just went down. Uh, we'll see about those Mets. Very interesting with their new general manager. Going against the grain. He's not your Ivy League intern at age 21, rose to the ranks, and then at 35 got a job. Uh, head of CAA Sports and then goes over and Brody Van Wagenen and gets a job with the Mets as general manager. And the mandate over there is win now. And we'll see if that is even possible. <laughs> Good luck, Mets. We'll find out. Uh, also wrote about the Hall of Fame recently. Uh, at two places, actually, Sportsnet and CBS Sports. Lots of stuff about Larry Walker. I guess he's my new cause celebre, for lack of a better uh, term. And uh, good luck to Mr. Walker. After Tim Raines left, he was my favorite ball player. And uh, also happens to be deserving. Much like Reigns, it's always neat when the guy who you root for happens to uh, be somebody who's actually worthy of induction to the Hall of Fame. So you can write it with authority and confidence. That's a good thing. And uh, various and sundry other things at CBS Sports that you can check out all the time, as well as my off-season, uh, what do you call it, like hot stove bonanzas, basically. So I've done the NL East, NL Central. We're on to the NL West now. So the first 10 teams are already up at CBSSports.com. Check it out if you're a fan of any of those teams or just want to see what's going on with the rest of the league. And 20 more teams to go this off-season. So, yes, the podcast. It is with Julian David Stone, and it is time for you to listen right now. So with the podcast, it's funny how it works because oftentimes it's okay. The Houston Astros are on a winning streak and let's talk to a baseball writer and what have you. But then sometimes I'll get stuff sent to me or I'll get a pitch and I won't know anything about the author or the person and I won't know anything about the project. And then I will say, sure, send it along. 
and it'll be a total home run. And this is the case with this book by Julian David Stone. It's called No Cameras Allowed. My career as an outlaw rock and roll photographer, 1981 to 1987. And Julian, we have him right now. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Great to be talking to you. So I love this book. Uh, first of all, it looks beautiful. And uh, it's it's just a quintessential coffee table book, especially if you're a music lover. Like gigantic photos of Prince doing the splits in midair. You cannot go wrong if you're, you know, I'm 44. That's right in my zone. That's perfect. So a lot of great stuff here. But I think fundamentally what we want to do, because the book tells a story. Sometimes you have a coffee table book. It's a picture of the Louvre. And it's okay. It's a Louvre. It's a nice museum. But this is about a certain time in your life. And obviously you've gone on to do other things where you decide to do this. So starting in 81 – well, let's start there. What what were you doing in 1981, and what made you say, you know what, I'm going to smuggle camera parts in my underpants into concerts and see how that goes for me? Yeah, I, you know, I was I was a teenager. I was obsessed with rock and roll, and my attempts to play it had gone down in flames. I had no musical talent, mm-hmm. so I started to dabble in photography, and I decided to combine the two of them. And the Ramones were coming to town, and I thought, oh, this is great. I'll take my camera to the show. I'll photograph the Ramones, and we'll see what happens. Well, I went to the club. I showed up, and the bouncer saw my my bag and laughed at me and pointed at a, at a sign that said, no cameras allowed, and, uh, you know, said, you're not coming in here with that equipment. And so I went away. I went to my car, and I was about to get rid of the equipment, and I went, you know, I think there is a way to, to make this happen. And uh, I decided to, as you said, to smuggle the equipment and my body. I went in, I w- uh, got in, got right by the bouncer, um, went in the bathroom, assembled the equipment, came out as the Ramones were hitting the stage, shot them. And then after that, I was just obsessed. Um, I shot about 10,000 pictures of all the biggest stars of the 80s over the next five or six years. So, and I want to get into the photography stuff, but I'm, I just, I have to stop you for one second. What the heck was it like seeing the Ramones in 1981? Was it just my, I know you're doing, not really your job, you're doing this as a vocation, you're doing it as a side, as a side thing, but tell me about them live at a little club. That must have been unbelievable. It, it was incredible yeah. because, like I said, I was obsessed with rock and roll, but I have to say, as a as a show that this all began at, I couldn't ask for more. Oh my God, yeah. I, I really um, wasn't prepared for just how amazing they were. They, they just, you know, it was one, two, three, four, and that, you know, they would yeah. launch, launch into a song, and it was just so much fun. Everything was, you know, two minutes, two and a half minutes, and they were just great. And looking back, I'm so happy with how great, considering it was the first show I did this with, but I'm so happy with my photos because when I started to put this together, as you said, it was kind of the, the book was kind of a period of my life mm-hmm. that um, I had sort of put away. So I was almost shocked when I, you know, because everything in my mind had kind of gotten out of order. I was kind of surprised how early on, let alone the first time, were the Ramones pictures because I'm really, really happy with them. And I should say, by the way, that although you do a whole bunch of things, uh, this kind of description you have written as well. So it's not like writing is not is not in your bag of tricks, too. But, you know, this is the opener Four leather jackets, three chords, two minute songs, one hell of a lot of attitude. The Ramones. That's really good. I'm hooked right away. I like it. It's really great. Well, thank you. You know, that was kind of part of what I wanted to do with the book was to to not just have the photos, but to tell the story. And, and all of the crazy adventures I had, you know, getting chased by roadies and bouncers and everything. That to me was really important that that be part of it too, that it not just be the photos. You, you get into this over the course of the book and I'm not going to give it away yet because the, the denouement has to do with this very question, but 
you're seeing the Ramones and U2 and, and the police and these just monster incredible bands right at the height of their powers. And you end up in the front row, basically, because you're muscling your way over there with a camera. How tempted are you to say, what am I doing with my damn camera? Jeez, Bono is six inches from my face. Why don't I just zone, you know, just get into I will follow and leave it alone right now? You know, it's funny, you sort of develop a way of sort of doing both at the same time. Right. You know, it just becomes part of your way of being a part of the show. Yeah. It's like, wow, this is great. I want to, I want to get this moment. You know, a lot of people have asked me like, you know, were, did the, did the bands you were seeing particularly influence your photos? And the one thing I did realize is that kind of the better the concert, the more I almost felt a responsibility to get better pictures. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you're based in the Bay Area at that time, too. Yeah. And so it's yeah. a lot of, like, cool clubs. Like, the, it's a lot of cool stuff that happens at the Greek. There's these great acts that come through there. But smaller ones, too. I'm going to skip ahead for a second because I, I this might have been my favorite of them all. And I understand that we're skipping. But Chuck Berry played a county uh, fair. Chuck Berry in the 1980s played a county fair and played as if it were 1959. And Chuck Berry was Chuck Berry, right? I mean, that had to be... Just uh, way out there, totally different than you know some underground band at some underground club. It, it was it was the the absolute perfect way to see him. You know, this is Chuck Berry, like you said. You know, in the 1980s, when so many of his contemporaries had tried to modernize, yeah. but not Chuck Berry. You know, this was this was a the Sonoma County Fair. The stage literally had no back. <laughs> it was just, it was literally like somebody just put a 20 foot square in the middle of you know the fair. And they had like one spotlight on him. And, you know, Chuck would do this. I think, believe he did this through his whole career. He had no band. It was just him. So he'd show up in a town and contractually you had to find three guys to play with him who would, you know, everybody knew those songs, certainly by the eighties. And he would just, you know, play with them. And it was just absolutely magical because it was like, it could have been 1956. It could have been a fair in the South, you know, and you were seeing him, you know, perform and, and it was just absolutely wonderful and they are i'm glad you brought those up because those are some of my favorite pictures and those were you know again a lot you know going back to how this was a long time ago when i did this a lot of these pictures certainly all of them i hadn't really looked at in 30 35 years when wow. i put them together but some of them i had almost never seen because mm. when i was doing it i'd shoot the show i'd develop the pictures i'd make a contact sheet maybe print one or two sometimes didn't even do that and then it was on to the next show so when I looked at these Chuck Berries, I was like, wow, these are, these are really great. These are really fun. So I, they, I was kind of seeing them myself for the first time. Well, it kind of leads into the next question too, which is what were your aspirations then? As you said, you didn't exactly curate these to death. You didn't have no. a contract at the time you were a kid who was screwing around. So did you envision that this could lead to something or was, or, or was it just, oh, I'm just going to have fun with it? It started having fun with it. And then when I built up a portfolio, and again, I talk about this in the book, yeah. you know, I briefly went pro because I had this really impressive yes, um, portfolio. And uh, so that was kind of where it was heading. And then I, I, I was really the, my whole thing was I was going to be in the film business. So this was kind of on the side. And so I reached a point where I couldn't sustain both of them as I was now in college. And I was, you know, I was, I was studying film and I was getting all these calls to, cause the pro career had taken off and I was working for a couple of magazines to shoot concerts and I couldn't do them both. So I, I made the choice to, you know, to go with the film business and just put this away. And then the idea of the book came literally 30 years later. It was when Prince and Bowie passed away. Yeah. I put pictures on yeah. Facebook and all of a sudden I got deluged with questions like, why do you have these pictures? How did you take them? And I started to tell people the stories 
And that's when a lot of people said, hey, you should do a book because the, the, the real fun of it was all the smuggling in of the equipment. And, you know, now now it's kind of a, a rare archive of all these great stars of the 80s. None of the pictures have ever been seen before. It's it's unbelievable, really. And one of the there's a great story that's told about how these contracts came to be, how you started getting work out of this. And one of them was this photo of Bono, which is just remarkable, like really, really good. And something, you know, typically your uh, perspective is first row, but you shot, I want to get to the Duran Duran story. It's like, it's like, that's great too. Really great. You shoot from a distance, you shoot all this stuff, but it was really good. And tell me, tell the listeners what happens when you, you're going over photos with somebody who wants to employ you and they see this photo of Bono. Yeah. So, um, I shot Bono a couple of times. I shot U2 in Ireland. And then about 18 months later, I shot them in San Francisco. Yeah. And there, it, it's a big part of my portfolio. So there, at this point, I had built up a good portfolio and I was starting to, to want to maybe pursue this as a career or certainly, you know, go legit. So there was an open call by a, bay, a magazine called BAM. It was a big magazine in California for rock and roll. And I went in with my portfolio and they're going through it and they're loving the pictures. And they get to this picture you're talking about of Bono. And it's a very distinctive picture because he's pointing sort of into the crowd. It's a very close up shot into the crowd. And it was a moment in the concert where they would bring somebody up on stage and they'd give him the edges guitar and teach him a chord. Right. And the person would strum the chord and they would leave him on stage by himself. So I, I had this moment of Bono pointing to that person. So the, they're going through my portfolio. They get to that photo of Bono and they stop. It was two photo editors and they're looking at it for a long time. And then they look to each other and then they look at me and they say, two weeks ago, we were look, we were doing a cover story on Bono and we were looking for a photo and we couldn't find a good one of him. If we had had this picture, this would have been our cover. And so they hired me right away, right after that. It's amazing. Uh, another one that struck me too was the spread from Shea Stadium with the police. Ah, yes, yeah. So good. Listen, I'm happily married to a woman. I think I have a cry. Like that photo, the shirtless photo of Sting. Holy cow. Like these are sexy photo. Like Prince looks awesome. You know what I mean? Like some of these photos are really, we could turn it around. We could talk about. Christina and the uh, Katrina and the waves rather too, or or the B fifty twos. We could do all that stuff, but just like there's a lot of um, I don't know what it is that makes these photos have a lot of sex appeal. Maybe it's just that the guy had his shirt off, but there's something very smoldering about a lot of these photos too that really comes across. Was that a goal, or is it just oh cool, nice snap? I'm gonna put well, that in the book. Well, it, it's funny that you should say that. The thing, and particularly years later that I put together, because when I was shooting as you know as an outlaw photographer, as yeah. you know as is the title in my book, um, uh, I was shooting from the audience's point of view, which mm. means I was capturing the performance that the artist intended for the crowd. Now, when you shoot professionally, which I did at the end, it's a very different vantage point. You're in the pit right in front of the performer, so you're practically looking up their nose. Yeah. So to some degree, what you're saying goes along with I was catching show that the the artist intended and you know certainly if you're talking about prince or sting at this point you know when he takes his shirt off in front of seventy thousand people he knows what he's doing for the <laughs> women you know I, I i say this in the book that if you're looking for the definition of a rock star standing in front of seventy thousand people shirtless at shea stadium the mecca of live rock and roll that just might be the definition you know although you make the point that when you shot duran duran that it was you know 99 percent teenage girls and they were like Beatlemania level yeah. fawning over the artist. We, we got to talk about the whole Duran Duran story because this yeah. is just like, this is a beauty. 
So, yeah, so Duran Duran, this is like early, late 83, early 84, the peak of Duran Duran mania. And to be honest, I was not the hugest fan of Duran Duran. You know, I knew a couple of songs that liked them, but I I was now in the first year of college and there was a guy there who was obsessed with them. Mm -hmm. His world was Duran Duran. So he said, I'm going to pay for your film, pay for your ticket, everything, if you'll go with me and we'll take pictures. Great. So we go down to the show. Well, it's completely sold out. There's no tickets around. So we finally find a guy at the door who, if we slip him like 50 bucks, he'll let us into the show. We give him our 50 bucks. We go in. We don't have seats. So we're kind of wandering around the mezzanine of of the arena. And it's just pandemonium. Girls are screaming. They haven't even come out yet. You know, they're just waves of screams. Well, the band comes out. The lights go down. I pull out my camera. I start shooting. And I'm taking some pictures. I get about one or two rolls shot. And, I'm, and what I would do after I would shoot a roll, I would bury it in my in my shoe. Just It was just kind of a place that I did it. So the plan is to shoot a couple of, you know, to shoot a little bit and then make our way down closer. Well, I'm shooting away. All of a sudden, I feel this hand on my back, and I turn around, and there's these two huge guys there, and they're like, Duran Duran, group security, please come with me. And my, my friend freaks out. He disappears <laughs> like, like a puff of smoke. He's gone. And and I get called away by these two huge guards. They take me outside of the arena. This is the forum in Los Angeles. Yeah. And they take all my film. They rip open my camera. They take everything. They don't get the two rolls in my, in my shoe. They didn't look there. But they take everything away from me and hand back my camera like, okay, here you go. You can't do any anything with this now you've got no film then they, they kind of start to lighten up and they're like okay we'll let you go back into the show there's nothing you can do now we got your film so they take me back to the arena they knock on a door well it's the same door where we paid the guy to get in he, he opens the 30 door. bucks each was his big money then yeah and, and exactly and and you know although you know he was obviously just pocketing it but sure. so this guy opens the door um sees me standing there with these two huge guards he figures i've ratted him out to them because he, he doesn't why am I standing with security he didn't know about my photos so he starts to freak out and he won't let us in he's like slamming the door at security and they don't know what's going on so there were so they the guy slams the door shut we're standing outside the arena and they start to look at each other well what are we going to do with this guy so they start having a conversation they decide they're going to take me in they're going to take me in through the backstage area and I'm like, hey, this is starting to sound like a really great idea. So they start to march me off there. And I've got all these, like, visions of what's going to happen. And just as we're about to head into that area, they get another call. And they just end up just dropping me in the in the parking lot. So, and then I, my, my friend, like, arrives. It was, it was like crazy time because they leave me. And out of the blue, my friend shows up. He left the show figuring I was on my way to jail. <laughs> And so he's like completely <laughs> melting down and I'm like, I'm fine. I, you know, I'm having a great time with the whole thing. So that's where the story ended. But there is, there's a great shot in the book of them that I am proud of the one yeah. sort of from the one surviving role. You were hungry like a wolf for more photos, but they didn't. Really <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, sorry, yes. I, that was an easy one. Uh, I also appreciate an underrated part of the book to me. I don't know who's rating it. In my mind, it's underrated. There's a, a band called Eddie and the Tide. I've never yeah. heard of Eddie and the Tide in my life. But you tell the story so evocatively about a band that didn't blow up. You know, there was another one that you went to that was they were more like a hair metal one, and that didn't really work as much as. But yeah. that, there were it was the eight. Every decade has this, but there was a lot of big dreams, and particularly with someone like Eddie and the Tide, huge local following. Like really, oh, these guys are going to break. Well, I was there when they played in front of my mom and my aunt and nobody else, and now they're playing Yankee Stadium or whatever. I really like that a lot. Tell me about the vibe at those shows as opposed to, 
not that the B-52s wouldn't have a good audience, but just like when you're quintessentially a local band and people are really, really into you, what was it like to see Eddie and the Tide? You know, it was great because I, I, I shot them a bunch of times and it was like, you were just sure that they were going to break, you know, like they were good. Yeah, they were, they were just a perfectly good band. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, they had their album that they would sell at the, at the show. They had a deal on an independent label. They did reach, it was funny because I was, you know, I was telling my wife about all of this and she's a little younger than me. She, of all people, she knew Eddie and the Tide, even though she grew up way up in Oregon because the peak of their career is their one moment that they got even past the, um, the, the local following was they have a song on the soundtrack to Lost Boys. Oh, were, wow. Yeah. So because they were a band, they were out of Santa Cruz in the, in yep. the Bay Area. And that's where that story took yep. place. So I think that's why their song. So that was kind of their peak. But it, it, it was so fun because, like I said, everybody had that band in their town. Mm-hmm. That you were sure was going to make it big, and you like you said, you'd be able to say, you know, you you saw the Beatles at the Cavern Club, or you know, one of those things, or or you know, uh, Springsteen at the Bottom Line. Some when they, you know, when they were up and coming, but unfortunately, Eddie and the Tide, you know, never never made it. I remember when like they they did a video, you know, or just they were doing all the things that seemed this success, but unfortunately, it it, it didn't happen. They never made it. Their, their peak literally was that that one song on the soundtrack. You also talk about how most of these shows, with Duran Duran being the exception, that you go by yourself. And that's yeah. interesting to me because I, photography is it would seem to be a lone wolf kind of profession. You don't have time for somebody tapping you on the shoulder. you got to get the aperture right. There's 10,000 people yeah. screaming. I get it. But there's something about music and shared experiences, right? Like I can identify my favorite shows and – you know, it was with somebody that I enjoyed being with, a friend or a a partner or whatever. Did you feel like you missed something by not having, you know, a friend be with you at Prince? Or was it just, no, this is what I was doing and that was that? Well, well, it's funny you should say that Prince, I actually was with somebody and that I'll I'll tell this story because that's how we ended up getting the lens in. Prince. Oh, that's right. You did tell that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Right. So, so Prince was actually like, you know, you talked about Duran Duran was sort of like I was saying was like Beatlemania. Well, in terms of the Beatlemania that I enjoyed, Prince was the closest to that, that, um, that I was part of. This was, you know, right after the Purple Rain movie came out and the album and Prince was everywhere. And I remember walking through the dorm of my school and you could hear that album coming after room after room after room at different places in the album. It was that big. So when he came to town, I was like, this is going to be great. And I went out and I bought a special lens and I ordered it by mail and it didn't come until the day before the show. So unfortunately I didn't really get a chance to, to sort of like, you know, I made sure it worked on my camera, but I didn't really integrate it into my smuggling techniques. So I get to the parking lot and I was there with a female friend, a dear friend of mine, and we're, you know, all excited to see Prince. And I go about my business. And at this point, I had gotten up to like, I would tape lenses, you know, in my, uh, you know, to my leg and things like that. Well, the lens was just too darn big. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't fit. It was a huge, massive telephoto lens. So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do because I want to get these photos. Well, this is the 80s and hair is starting to get real big. And this friend (laughs) of mine had huge 80s hair and she always carried a gigantic can of Aquanet with her. And I'm not talking about a little can. I'm talking about a giant (laughs) can of Aquanet. So we hide the lens in her purse under the Aquanet can. We go into to security and I can see the security guard kind of staring because it was kind of a, it was a purse that it, it had this bulge, this sort of cylindrical bulge. And he's like, what are you trying to bring in here? 
the purse. He sees the can of Aquanet, like, oh, okay. Into the show we go. I pull out the lens, you know, in the bathroom or, or get it from her and, you know, and set up in the dark. And when Prince comes out, that's why the, I have so many great photos from the show is I got this beautiful lens into it. So um, in that case, I did go with somebody and, and it saved my butt in the moment because I, I would have had a problem without without her being there. Was that the show for you? Was that the one in this six-year period that that was your favorite, or was there another one that stood out to you? And no, I guess maybe these are two different questions, because maybe it's your favorite one as somebody who's shooting versus your favorite one as, as a music fan. That could be totally right. different. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was definitely up there. It, it certainly had the highest percentage of photos that I was happy with, and that's why there's so many photos yep. of print in the book, because it was just such a great show, and, and I felt really good about my work. Um, I would say that was a, a very big one. The police at Chase Stadium that you mentioned sure. was a big one. Seeing you two in Ireland in 1983 was pretty special. Because, You're a kid. You just decided to yeah, bum around and go I'll, to Ireland. I, I, I'm 19 years old. I've got to be the only American in the crowd. Mm. And this is kind of their Irish homecoming because this is after they'd sort of gone out and conquered the world yeah. and come back. And it was the Edge's birthday. So <laughs> it was it was just a very emotional show. And, and I... I only felt a little out of place because it, it was so intimate, you know, to, to, to the people there, but it, but it was a wonderful experience. That's great. So I want to talk about the transition to the professional stuff. We talked about Bam Magazine, but tell me about the next call that comes in and who that was and, and what that yeah. was. Because I'm, I'm a journalist, right? So I've had that call like, oh, so-and-so was. I, I remember the first time I wrote for the New York Times. That was a big deal. I was like, oh, it's the New York Times. Oh, it's a big yeah. deal. In this case, there's nothing that could be bigger in your particular field right. than which one? Right. So um, I had shot a festival yeah, uh, and shot a bunch of acts at a festival. I think it was like Rat and you mentioned Katrina and the Waves. And right. I come back and, it, you know, I got home very late at night and my phone rings about eight o'clock in the morning and I answer it and I hear this voice over the phone go, hi, this is so-and-so. I'm calling from Rolling Stone magazine. Wow. Like photos. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm half asleep and I'm like, <laughs> what? Rolling Stone shooting up in bed and reaching for stuff. And it was an editor from Rolling Stone, a photo editor calling me because I had typed up this list on a manual typewriter of all my concerts, you know, would say like, you know, uh, you know, Duran, Duran, dot, 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 dot. And then the, the date and all this stuff. And I had mailed it out to them. And amazingly, they had responded and called me and picked this moment. So I, the, the, the woman over the phone, you know, very quickly says we'd like to see pictures from the talking heads. And uh, I think it was Talking Heads, Tom Petty, and and somebody else. Huey Lewis in the that. news. Oh, Huey Lewis in the news. Thank you. I did read the book. It's very good. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. And and we'd like to see your photo. So I'm yeah. sort of writing this down half asleep. And I remember she's sort of getting impatient because I don't think she was expecting a kid to answer. You know, yeah. I, I, I think I'm like 20 at this point at the, at the other end of the phone. And the part that I remember was at the end, and I'm trying to put it together, I'm like, so you want me to mail these to you? And she's like, no, I'm going to give you a FedEx number. We'll pay for it. And I don't think I'd ever sent a FedEx in my life, no. let alone knew that they had an account. No. You know, you do that. So she, you know, she gives me the number and sure enough, like it's over and I hang up and I'm almost like, did that really just happen? And then, you know, I look at the notes, my scribbled notes of the whole thing. And it had, and, you know, by, by certainly within a couple of hours, I had gotten my act together and shipped the pictures off to Rolling Stone. Unbelievable. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because obviously you went on to, you know, you wanted to be a filmmaker. You ended up going into that business and that's all great. But you talk about in the book that it was a hard decision, but in some ways it wasn't quite as hard as you thought because you were doing these things for Rolling Stone and other publications. But 
it wasn't as awesome as you might have thought. T- tell us why that was, because I was really struck by that. I, I just thought, yeah. well, gee, I hit the big leagues, and now I don't like the big leagues. Like it was, a, it was, it was a surprising twist to the book. Yeah, so it, it was sort of a combination of things because it, it was, it came from such a place of passion of loving rock and roll that one, uh, what I realized that the sneaking in was almost part of being part of the rebellion of mm. rock and roll. So that aspect got taken away when I went pro number one, number two, suddenly I was shooting acts that I didn't necessarily want to see. You know, you talked about me going by myself. Well, I, or with a friend, I certainly didn't go to see anybody that I didn't like. Well, that's not necessarily the case when you get a call, you got to go shoot so-and-so, you know, and at, at eight o'clock down, you know, at, at this place or that. So that, that was a part of it. And then also, the the fact of being in the pit the the point of view as I, as I talked about wasn't as interesting they, and they only want you to shoot three songs yeah, you know the, yeah. the person says okay you got two or three songs then you're out of here and we don't want you taking any more pictures um, now I'm not saying I always adhered to that part of it right but it was still funny that like it's like well there's a whole show here the first two or three songs are great but that doesn't tell the whole story you know um, and then lastly putting it all together the pictures frankly weren't as good yeah. I just found that like when I was shooting a band that I didn't care for in the pit, it just wasn't, you know, they were good, but they weren't the same. They weren't like the Prince photos or the police where I'm like, you know, these are my favorite acts at this moment that I love their albums. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I want to get these, these great pictures. It's different when you're, you know, you're shooting somebody, you know, that you don't, you don't quite have that feeling for. I have a very dumb and very elemental question. Why don't musicians want you to take their photos? You know, I don't know. It's just a control thing. It was just part of the, you know, now they've given up. You know, I get asked well, that question. phone, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was funny because, you know, when phones first came in, like, you know, when, when everybody suddenly, like in the, like, 2010, 2011, everybody suddenly had a phone with a yeah. camera, they were still trying to keep people from doing it. Now they've given up. You just, like, they don't even attempt it. And back then, they wanted no part of it. You could, they didn't want any pictures. Hmm. I don't know. I guess it was just controlling the image, you know, because I certainly didn't sell the pictures. I did it from a place of love. But, you know, they maybe they felt you were going to somehow exploit them, you know? It's funny, too, because the one artist, legendarily, who seemed to maybe have been able to find a way to not allow photos or audio recordings or whatever was Prince. That Prince had yeah. some sort of iron seal on these shows and there was so much mystique. Did Prince really play in Iowa last night? Nobody knows. that, he, And nobody else could. Not the biggest bands in the world. Nobody could do it. But Prince is just like, nope, you're checking your thing at the door and everyone's like, okay, okay. But I can still see Prince, right? You know, it's just it's one of those things. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you too, when you're putting this together, what hit the cutting room floor? Did you want this book to be a hundred more pages? Were, were there other acts that you wish you could have got in there? And, oh, I went to see, I don't know, in excess in 1986 and Michael Hutchins looked really good, but all my photos sucked. I mean, well, like what, right. what was it that, what did you not end up putting in, I guess? Yeah, there's very little in terms of well, pretty much the acts that I wanted are okay. in there. There are photos that there wasn't room for. Like, I have a lot of Huey Lewis of some great photos of him, but there's, you know, there's a lot of Huey Lewis, right. but there wasn't room for, you know, for more. That was a band that I happened to see because it was a Bay Area. Yeah, act, right. And they played a lot, and I had a lot of great photos that it was kind of like, okay, there, there's enough Huey. You know, I got very lucky. The the book designer I worked with was just fantastic, because I can tell you, he there there were – you know, there's sort of like the 20 or 30 that were sort of my favorite pictures that I knew would be in the book. But the other, there's over 250 in the books, all of them never before seen. Mm. Um, so many of them were because of this book designer. Um, 
you know, he just really was great at going, you know, I, I can be very technical and go, well, that's a little out of focus or that's yeah. a little blurry, even though that adds to the emotion of the photo where he'd be like, no, that's a fantastic shot. So um, that's not quite answering your question, but um, that that was a part of it. But there is, you know, he sort of made a joke the other day about we could do another book because, yeah, there's a lot of photos left of pretty much every band that's in there. There's definitely more, particularly like you 2 and the police, you know, there I shot a lot of photos of these guys. Well, there, to, there's room for, and to your point, by the way, one of my favorite photos in the book is one of Prince playing the piano. You could barely see Prince. It's 95% black, this photo, right. and just a little sliver of light coming down, but yes. you know that it's his silhouette. And you know, these, it's very powerful. It's good stuff. I mean, the in your face stuff obviously works, but it's just, you and the designer really did a good job. Like it's just, it's a, it's a visually arresting book. It's really cool to look at. Well, thank you. Yeah. That was really what the, the designer was really good at finding the drama. Cause that, that's a great example of, yeah, the way that, that particular picture and it is the, it's the last picture of Prince in the book. Yeah. So it has kind of an evocative, you know, with the light almost, he's being called heavenward, you know? <laughs> so. And literally, I guess um, I, I want to ask you about the, the, the concert that ended up ending it. And, you know, you want to talk about legendary acts. It's a Springsteen show and you had talked about your kind of ambivalence about certain elements of literally your job at this point uh but gee i mean maybe if you talk about signs from god maybe this was it maybe the springsteen show it was destined for you to go into another career after what went down here yeah so springsteen was coming to town again this is the peak of springsteen it's 85 born in the usa tour which went on for you know, over a year and he had like, I think 10 sold out shows at the LSA, LA Coliseum. Oh Arena. And this God. is, yeah, this is the outdoor, you know, 80,000 people yeah, concert. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to the last show and I said, this is going to be awesome. And I had, I got all this equipment in and all this film and I was like 10th row center and he hits the stage, you know, and it's Bruce in front of the American flag born in the USA. And I'm just shooting away and about a couple songs in something sort of happens with the camera and it's one of those things like in the moment, I don't think anything of it. It's just, you know, later, as I'll tell, it would be more significant. And I keep shooting away and I shoot like 20 rolls of film and the show ends and I go back to my school and I go down into the dark room. I can't wait to develop them. It's about two in the morning and I develop the first rolls of film and they're completely blank. And I suddenly realize in the moment, that moment back in the show, what had happened that the aperture had frozen, basically closed. And I realized I had about one and a half rolls of good pictures and everything else was going to be blank. And I, it just washed over me and it was awful. And I remember I still had to develop them looking for some miracle. And, and I just remember being down there all night developing roll after roll and pulling out uh. these blank negatives. And I took that, as you said, as the sign that I can't sustain these two careers. I, I'm, I'm in film school and it's taking up all my time and I'm getting all these calls to shoot all these shows. And I just decided that this is the sign I've been looking for. So I had a couple other shows after that that I had already agreed to shoot. I think it was like Nick Lowe and Los Lobos and a couple. And yeah. I finished those up and, and that was it. That's when I hung it up in about 86, 87. Well, if you're going to balance the two careers, going back 30 years later and publishing these really cool photos is a good way to do it. And so I, that makes total sense. Like now that you've told me about the Prince and Bowie thing, we all, you know, of a certain generation, when when they both passed away so soon together, it was just, yeah, it, it hit us harder than we thought. You know, I never saw Bowie, but it was, and 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 I never listed Bowie as my favorite artist. But you sort of think about, it, you say, well, gee, this guy's responsible for everything. You know, he's either right. written somebody else's song or he would collaborated with Mercury or whatever it is, and and it yeah. just so it really really uh, hits home and and. But honestly, I mean, if you're 25, you will appreciate this book, too. It's really cool looking, and, I mean, everybody likes Prince, so that's good, too. 
so so I, I really uh, really dug it, and uh, and I really dug your stories in this book, and I hope it does well because it's cool. It's really really great, great effort. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I'm really really happy with it. The book is called No Cameras Allowed: My Career as an Outlaw Rock and Roll Photographer. Julian David Stone. Thank you for coming on the show, and it was great to meet you. Great to meet you, and a pleasure to talk with you.